Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is James Rom, the author of Dying Every Day, Seneca at the Court of Nero. James is a professor of classics at Bard College who specializes in ancient Greek and Roman culture. He has also edited two books on Seneca for the Ancient Wisdom for Modern Readers series titled How to Die and How to Keep Your Cool. In the episode, we discuss the meaning behind dying every day, the two Senecas, fear and death, living a meaningful life, humility and friendship, wisdom in daily life, and much more. Now, please welcome the wise and gracious James Rom. What led you down the path to your work in the world today, Jamie? Well, if you mean um, my work in the field of classics, it was the um, benefit of a great teacher in my undergraduate days, uh, a man named John Harrington, since passed, who um, made the Greek world come alive. He was just one of those gifted lecturers, and um, he lived the life of a humanist. He had a fourth century Greek cup from which he would drink wine at uh, symposia. And uh, he had his own rhapsodes staff, which he had carved so that he could recite Homer in Greek while holding aloft his staff. So I had the um, inspiration of a great mentor. And that led me to learn Greek and later learn Latin and then go on to study both of them at a graduate level. That's so interesting. It's definitely a common theme that that comes up on the podcast. We ask a lot of different people that question. A particular professor or individual in that undergraduate kind of age really having a, an influence in, in setting that direction in life. You've, you've written a number of books now on, on Seneca, someone that also played that mentor role to a to a young person, but uh, maybe a question of this book, Dying Every Day, what led you to embark on that and, and what's the meaning behind the title? Well, the title is a quote from Seneca on two different occasions in his huge body of surviving writings. He says, we are dying every day, quotidien morimur, uh, which is his way of saying that life is a journey toward death, and we have to be aware of death all the way through that journey. We have to be looking to the end point, preparing ourselves, rehearsing for death. He has all different formulations, but um, death was really the um, the proving ground for him of moral philosophy. Um so I became interested in, in, I'm not a morbid person by nature, but uh, I became interested in Seneca because of his I- immense complexity. He wrote not just moral philosophy, but also 
tragic dramas that are quite brilliant and moving and also a comic satire about the death of the emperor Claudius. So he had a huge range as a writer. Then he also played an important political role. He was the chief minister to the emperor Nero for about 10 years and helped to run the Roman empire. So you really can't find a more complex life than that. <laughs> and uh, I became intrigued by him as soon as I uh, got to know his, his many levels. And you call it two Senecas in the book. And, and something I've always been fascinated by, and, and probably many of the listeners are familiar with, is these two different busts of Seneca that look very, very different. So maybe you could speak a bit about the two Senecas. And if you could touch on those, those two busts, I, I think it might be helpful. So only one of them is a bust of Seneca. The other one was taken to be Seneca for centuries after it was found. It's a very idealized portrait of a man who looks like he should be a philosopher. He's thin and worn, and his eyes are sort of gazing off into the uh, eternal. And um, he looks like a wise man. He's got a big beard and long hair. So when that was discovered in the Renaissance, it was thought to be Seneca, and it informed the portraits that were painted in the Renaissance of the death of Seneca, a famous portrait by Peter Paul Rubens. Um, then in the 19th century, a portrait was discovered of a very different type of a bald man without any beard, with big fleshy jowls, who looks like he maybe wants to sell you some life insurance. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the inscription on the chest of the bust says Seneca. So now we know, or then we we found out that that was the real Seneca and the other one was a, a, a fiction. And I use that as a metaphor in my book, Dying Every Day, to talk about the two different faces of Seneca, the very philosophic and moral face that he presents in his prose works, his essays, and the rather... Um, shabby, shall we say, or um, uncomfortable visage that he presents in his political life under Nero. Before picking up your book, I've recently been going through Seneca's letters, and I've read um, recently the letters titled Consistency and Daily Study and Practice, and coming to see a bit more of his actual life, it is interesting how there's not much of a, a reflection on maybe his shortcomings or where he kind of missed the mark. It, it does seem to read that maybe he's a, a bit on a pedestal kind of writing to Lucilius as, as this mentor. How do you make sense of, of maybe the, the contradiction so the work you're referring to, the letters to Lucilius, or the moral epistles are sometimes called, is the last work Seneca wrote before his death. And we know that at the time he wrote it, he was semi-retired from politics. He had 
made up his mind he didn't want to be part of Nero's regime any longer. Nero, unfortunately, wouldn't let him off the hook, and he was forced to stay in the service of the emperor, but very much detached, trying to stay as far out of the public spotlight as he could. Um, so he perhaps has a better claim on philosophy in the last years of his life. Uh, he also was, in my opinion, trying to rehabilitate his image mm. because the Romans had been deeply disappointed by some of the things he'd done under Nero, writing speeches to excuse the emperor's uh, um, murders of his own family and trying to put a good face on the emperor's crimes. So he had some repair work to do. And I think the letters to Lucilius are part of that repair work. How do you think about wisdom and humility, Jamie? I, I think of, um, if you look at maybe Socrates or, or, or different figures that maybe didn't write a, a lot down. Where would you rate Seneca in that, uh, you know, scale of, of hu humility, I guess, if you will? So that's an interesting question. Of course, he's the opposite of Socrates in that he wrote everything down. <laughs> he published voluminously. And the letters themselves, just that last work, go on for a long, long time. And we don't even have all of them there were more that were lost. Um, so uh, an extremely ample work. And a lot of it explores his own life, his own thoughts, his self. They're the model for Montaigne's essays, which were the, the Renaissance's first exploration of self in a very thoroughgoing way. Um, so he's not humble. He doesn't have much humility in that he thinks his life is worthy of a huge readership. <laughs> <laughs> he thinks, you know, we're bound to take an interest in his private thoughts on a day-to-day -day basis. But that said, the side of himself that he reveals is often very flawed. Just like Montaigne, he's candid about his shortcomings, his mm. problems, uh, the ways in which he doesn't measure up to his ideals for a good life, a good person. So I guess you could say he's he's not humble, but he's honest. Mm. <laughs> so uh, that's kind of a good combination. The idea of time, as you discussed in the, the title of dying every day, it seems that time comes up uh, as a consistent theme throughout his letters of not wasting today, uh, what hangs upon tomorrow loses today. Is there any figures that maybe influenced him? A any Anybody, any other philosophers that influenced him on this, this idea of time, or was it just life experience? Well, the Stoics had been interested in the subject of time uh, ever since their school was founded around four centuries before Seneca's time. Um, so uh, unfortunately we don't have many of the original Stoic writings, but we know that um, they were concerned about 
proper use of time and what constitutes uh, a good use of time. By the way, let me quickly put in a word for my upcoming book, which is based on Seneca's essay, De Brevitate Vitae, On the Shortness of Life, which is all about use of time. And that'll be coming out in the fall under the title, How to Have a Life, An Ancient Guide to Using Our Time Well. So time is really the principal theme there. But um, I think his own experience made him more sensitive than most Stoics to the need to use one's time. He had seen a lot of lives cut short by the decree of the emperor, Mm. his own age. He'd lived through the reign of Caligula, Claudius, and Nero, three emperors who conducted purges, show trials, executions. Um, And then there was the fire of Rome in 64, the last year of Seneca's life. So um, death was a much more common occurrence, and especially premature death. So Seneca was aware, um, live each day as if it were your last. And Seneca talks about this getting over the fear of death. How how does he advise we we get over this fear? Well, there there are different um, strategies that one can use. One is simply to ponder one's death to to keep it mentally close. You know, they used to have what they call memento moris. People would keep a skull on their desk or a skeleton in the room, um, some image to remind themselves of the imminence of death. Um, in uh, Japan today, I understand there's a kind of cafe or, or bar where you can go and lie down in a coffin for a, an hour at a time oh, and wow. uh, pretend to be dead. Um, so um, accustoming yourself is the principal strategy, what Seneca calls rehearsal for death. Um, and then there are different ways to think about death, uh, to think about it as non-sentience, which for the Romans was not a given. There were plenty of Roman ideas about going to the underworld and maybe being tortured for your sins or having all kinds of unpleasant experiences. But if you imagine to be non-sentience, it's just as if you had never been born or just Mm -hmm. as if you were not yet born. So Seneca makes the point you weren't afraid of not being before you were born, right? (laughs) There was nothing about not being born that was scary. So it'll be just the same after you're dead. You'll just not be. Mm. So there's nothing scary about that either. Connected to that, Seneca writes about how some people really never begin to live. And he he talks about in, in terms of a life, it's not necessarily the quantity, but the quality of that life. What what determines a, a quality life, according to Seneca? So that's very much the topic of how to have a life, the version of on the shortness of life that I, I'm putting out in the fall. It has to do with your mental activity. 
to be able to read philosophy, which not many of us do on a daily basis, but, you know, for Seneca to be able to immerse yourself in the works of Zeno, Aristotle, Theophrastus, Plato, the great minds of the past, and to remove your mind from the present, from your physical surroundings and, you know, ephemera, uh, is to achieve a kind of eternity, is to lengthen time because your mind is able to range outside of its own time and into all times. And so therefore, if you spend your time on philosophy, uh, you're essentially achieving a kind of immortality. You inhabit all ages at once. Does that particular idea um, connect with some of the other popular Stoics, to me, it seems I, I, I'm far from an expert on anything, but it does seem like Seneca makes a, a stronger point there than maybe Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus. How do you, how do you see it? Yes, very true. Uh, neither of those men that you mentioned are um, nearly as scholarly or as bookish as Seneca is. They don't talk nearly as much about what they read, what they've learned from their readings. They're more interested in life practice. So uh, Seneca, of course, talks a lot about behavioral ethics, what you do in the in the world. But he's also uh, very much an intellectual, and he talks about his readings. Mm. His letters to Lucilius often include a nugget that he's mined from one of the great thinkers of the Greek world. The first 20 or 30 letters all close with, you know, here's my piece of wisdom for the day, my fortune cookie, if you like, <laughs> uh, that um, I've just found in the works of Epicurus or someone like that. Yeah, I've, I've got a question about that. I, it's I've it's fascinating how many letters conclude with a quote from Epicurus. Um, one of my favorite quotes, I, I think Seneca says, um, I should never, never be ashamed of, of citing a, a bad author if the line is good. Um, Epicurus being from obviously another philosophical school, did he consider, you know, Epicurus a, a bad author or did he kind of agree with his philosophy more than more than not. Well, of course, he identifies himself as a stoic and the stoic school was deeply at odds with the epicurean school uh over fundamental principles. But nonetheless, there were areas of overlap and Seneca likes to choose from take from the enemy camp as he sometimes puts it. Uh, things that he thought were relevant to his own practice. Another figure that seems to come up, I guess maybe you'd call it as a, a mentor to Seneca or somebody that he saw had, had been down the path was, was Cato. Why was Cato an influential figure to Seneca? So we started off talking about death and Seneca's view that the quality of one's death reflects back on all of one's life and, and beliefs. So Cato 
in the first century BC died as a martyr slash suicide. He had been fighting to preserve the Republic from the encroachment of Julius Caesar. And then he was defeated. He was one of the last to stand against Caesar on the battlefield. And he was finally defeated at the Battle of Utica and knew that the game was up, that Caesar was now going to take control of the government of Rome. And he would have to live under that government if he were to go on living. So he took a sword and disemboweled himself, you know, ran it through his own guts. Uh, Some surgeons came, found him still alive and stitched him back up. And then he tore out the stitches and ripped out his own guts so as to complete the act. So he showed in Seneca's eyes, enormous fortitude, endurance of pain and suffering and commitment to his ideals to the point of death. Hmm. So he was for Seneca kind of heroic death that justified or that bore out all of the stoic ideals by which he claimed to live. Cato was a famous stoic also. I, I should have started with that. There is something that Seneca writes about in a, in a letter on testing your progress, not by words, but by strength of mind and lessening of desires. How would one go about lessening these desires? And and was that something that was maybe challenging for Seneca? It does seem to have been challenging. Uh, Seneca was a very wealthy man and also very powerful. And a lot of his wealth had come from his service under Nero. So the point was made in his own time. What kind of philosophy is it that justifies amassing a fortune of what today would be tens of billions. Seneca claimed that he didn't care so much about money, so it was okay for him to have it. (laughs) But nonetheless, uh, it it does create a bit of a contradiction, in my mind at least. Um, He also claims that he never conquered his own ambition. That is his desire to be close to the center of power. So even when he withdrew from Nero's service, he still remained at court and he was still, you know, a figure that wielded enormous amounts of power. Um, So he didn't live up to the ideal that he himself set for the philosophic life, a life of retirement and contemplation and Uh, disregard of wealth and power. He still clung to those things uh, up to the last. Speaking of, of power in his role with Nero, if I remember correctly, he was in exile for eight years or so. And then Nero's mother, you know, requests Seneca to come back to be his tutor uh, it seems like in exile, eight years, that's a long time. It seems like someone would, would maybe be forgotten of in that time. What any any info on what maybe led 
his mother to to think of Seneca at that time? Well, Seneca was still writing during his time in exile. Mm. He wrote three treatises that we still have today, and there seem to have been others that have become lost. And those were all sent back to Rome and circulated. And at least one of them quite clearly is tar- has the objective of getting back into the emperor's good graces and then getting recalled. Mm. So he made it clear that he wanted back in. Uh, and then there's also the essay De Ira, his, to my mind, his most successful moral essay on anger, which probably was substantially written during his exile, which is all about overcoming anger and taking whatever life dishes out to you and not fighting back, which if you read it against his history, it may very well have been a promise that he wasn't going to take revenge. He wasn't looking to get even if he did get recalled. So he was still active and still made his intentions plain that uh, he was not done for politically during his time on Corsica. When I think of someone being exiled, I guess in my mind, I've always kind of assumed maybe that they're going to some sort of very less populated area and they're, you know, separated somewhat, but it doesn't seem like what was exile exactly? I don't think it was a very harsh life. Uh, I believe he still had the proceeds of his estate. He still had substantial revenue coming to him. He probably could afford to live well. He describes his exile in one of his essays as a kind of retreat, like camping out of the woods, watching the night sky and being close to nature. But I bet he was still in a very big house with lots of (laughs) slaves and, you know, enjoying food and wine. Uh, Well, maybe not wine because he claims to be a teetotaler, but that too may be be suspect. The principal privation was that he couldn't take part in the life of the political class at Rome. Hmm. So if not for that, he might have been very happy. In fact, the play Octavia, which is a fascinating historical drama in which Seneca is a main character written just shortly after Seneca's death, uh, portrays him coming back to Rome, seeing the corruption all around him and saying, I was way happier on Corsica. (laughs) I should have stayed there. That's where the good life really was. And being called back to, to be a a mentor or tutor to a 13 year old, was that considered a, a very high and important position? Um, maybe it was to him, but as, you know, in that particular culture and society? Well, it's an unusual case. We, we know, of course, of the case of Alexander the Great, who was tutored by Aristotle at a similar age. And that may very well have been the model that Nero's mother was working from, hmm. trying to evoke the legacy of Alexander um, by having her son tutored by a um, a great philosopher. But there are really no other inter- intervening cases. Th- those are three centuries apart, and there's 
really nothing in between four centuries apart. So, Is there any particular life lessons that come to mind from Seneca's writings that are maybe not as familiar to the, to the average person as, uh, as they should be? Well, you know, it's very, very hard to extract single lessons. Seneca is such a complex writer. He weaves together lots of different ideas in his, even in a single essay. And that's what makes the letters such a complex work because not only do you have lots of ideas in a single letter, you have 128 letters and uh, some of them are, go on at great length. So he doesn't have the kind of um, point that, say, uh, Marcus Aurelius does or Epictetus. Um, I mentioned fortune cookies a little while ago. Some Someone once said that Almost every other sentence in Seneca is like something from a fortune cookie. <laughs> he was able to, you know, churn out these apothems uh, in a kind of facile way. And if you compare some of them, that there are some that just openly contradict one another. <laughs> so it, it's hard to um, use him as a as a guide to life in the um, series that. Princeton is putting out the Ancient Wisdom series. Uh, so I extracted his ideas about death for one volume, How to Die, and about repression of anger, How to Keep Your Cool, which is based, based on De Ira, the, the work I mentioned on anger. And a third one called How to Give, which is his work De Beneficis on benefits, which is all about gift giving and doing favors for people. I guess the the most uh, point, poignant or or pointed um, thought that he uh, that I've gotten from him is that um, we're all very flawed people. Mm-hmm. In De Ira, he gives you reasons not to get angry at people, even if they've done you wrong, or even if they've you know bashed your car or uh, slammed a door in your face or whatever. Um, we're all just wicked people living among other wicked people. If you didn't, if you've never done something like that, you could have, you probably thought about it and you probably wanted to. So, uh, he has a great humanity in his capacity for forgiveness and clemency. Uh, I think that for me is the overriding wisdom that I take away. I don't know if you'd call it a, a paradox or, or polarity, but around something you're talking about there of, of forgiveness, how he talks about holding himself to account, but then also at the same time, admonishing and forgiving ourselves for our shortcomings. Um, how do we put that into practice? That can be difficult to do. Any any advice from, from Seneca on actually forgiving ourselves and, and moving forward? Well, he describes his own practice. He says that at the end of each day, this is also in De Ira, he um, sits quietly with his wife and looks back over the course of the day at things he did wrong. And he, he lists a few examples, you know, 
you shouted too loudly at that person or you were too impatient when someone didn't come to the door to let you in. Um, step back further and laugh, he tells himself. He says, that wasn't good, but I forgive you. Step back further and laugh. That is, don't take yourself or the world so seriously. Uh, that will only cause you to get angry. You have to look at it from a distance and see that it's all fairly comical. <laughs> all these little trivial things that we think of as so important. Seems to be such an important lesson. Um, but maybe in our, our last bit of time, we could talk a little bit about wisdom. How would Seneca advise we we search for wisdom or we, we get on the path to becoming wiser? Well, as I mentioned, the reading of philosophy is huge. Um, reading great minds of the past, great thinkers of the past, looking to the great lives of philosophic men, men like Cato and Socrates, for inspiration. Uh, Socrates was always present to Seneca's mind. Socrates, who was never angered by those little annoyances. He, Seneca tells a story that once when Socrates was leaving his house, uh, someone was carrying a beam of wood to a construction site and bonked him on the head with a piece of wood. And he just looked around and said, one never knows if one should go out wearing a helmet nowadays. <laughs> uh, you know, the capacity to laugh things off and then to greet his own death with equanimity because he died swallowing hemlock, the poison that uh, Athenians used to execute state criminals and not feeling afraid and declaring with his last words that a sacrifice was owed to the God of healing hmm. or his release from his body. So if you have models like that in front of you, you can improve yourself. And how does Seneca define wisdom? I don't know if he has one, one sole definition. He often uses the term good mind, mans bona. Uh, you know, the goal of a, of a good life is to, is to cultivate a good mind. And that's done uh, through virtue, practice of moral virtue, uh, harmony with nature, with uh, the goodness of the natural world, because Stoics thought of the natural world as being sublimely good, um, and uh, a closeness to divinity. Mm. So it's, it's hard to formulate it in a single sentence, but... Uh, it's a it's a matter of um, believing that there's a divine plan for the world, for the universe, and it's good plan, and our job is to stay in harmony with it by practicing goodness. And how about for you, Jamie? How do you define or or think about wisdom in daily life? In addition to uh, Seneca, I'm deeply interested in Plato. Mm. And, you know, we, we all know Plato's greatest work is the Republic, which is subtitled On Justice. 
So I think of justice, the Greeks called uh, dikaiosune, as a fundamental virtue, in a sense, the, the governing virtue that sort of colors or, or informs all the other virtues. So I, I'm deeply interested in justice and practice of justice. I applied to be a town judge a couple of years ago when the position became open. I'm not a lawyer, but you don't need to be one, apparently. And uh, uh, I thought of that as a way to enact the ancient wisdom that I, you know, that I study in the in my own life and community. I didn't get the job, but uh, yeah, I would uh, I would love love to be a judge and administer justice. Nice, I love it that you threw your threw your hat in there. What what helps you to to choose justice, you know, in daily life, anything come, come to mind, what helps you to, to maybe see and, and make that choice? Justice is something one has to follow a thousand times a day. You know, there's a thousand different ways in which you can treat people fairly or treat the world fairly. Um, in, Book reviews, for instance, which I do on a regular basis, terribly important to be fair to the author, mm. to hold them responsible for errors or shortcomings, but also to recognize their positive intentions and their, you know, their effort. So, um, or in grading, which I do on a daily basis as a faculty member. Um, so, Every little thing has some element of justice in it. And you've got a couple recent books. You, you mentioned the one that, that's coming out in the fall, but you, you've had a couple that have come out recently, The Greek Histories and The Sacred Band. Could you speak a little bit about, about those two for the listeners? Sure. Well, The Greek Histories is an anthology of ancient historical writing, Greek historical writing, so I only edited that. I didn't write or translate. Um, the Sacred Band is my own narrative of the rise and fall of Thebes in the 4th century BC and the military corps that Thebes invented, the Sacred Band, a corps made up of pairs of male lovers that were stationed side by side so as to defend one another and... Uh, display virtue, the virtue of courage in one another's eyes. And that proved to be the most powerful military force that the Greek world had seen, capable of defeating the Spartans, which no Greek army had ever done. So Thebes became the superpower of Greece in the fourth century, thanks to the sacred band. And for about 20 years, they were the top dog. But for various reasons that fell apart and they became uh, subject or that they became the enemies of Philip of Macedon and his son, Alexander. And Alexander ended up destroying the sacred band on the field of battle and uh, annihilating the entire core. And that was really the end of Greek freedom because there was no Greek army after that capable of standing up to the Macedonians. Mm. That sounds fascinating. What led you to write The Sacred Band? 
Well, I think you can see how it brings together some philosophic ideas, Plato's ideal of eros as a force that inspires the soul towards goodness, towards virtue, um, with military history, which I'm deeply interested in, and um, uh, a story that I felt needed to be told because Xenophon, who's our historian for the 4th century, um, excluded much of Thebes from his Hellenica, his historical narrative. He despised Thebes, and so he covered up a lot of their greatest achievements. So I tried to correct for that, bring the story (laughs) back out into the spotlight. Well, that's great. This has been great. Where do you point people interested in in learning more about you and and your work? My website, jamesrom.com, is a great place to start. Well, James Rom, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. It's been a very enjoyable conversation. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.